Section 12 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6, The First Years of the War, Part 2. In the beginning of the year 1703, Marlborough met with a great sorrow. He had only one surviving son, the Marquis of Blandford, a youth of great promise, who now at the age of seventeen was just finishing his studies at Cambridge, and hoped soon to serve under his father in the Netherlands. Early in February he was taken ill of the smallpox. His father and mother hastened to him. The Queen sent her own doctors, and showed the tenderest anxiety for his safety, but he sank rapidly, and died on the 20th of February to the bitter grief of his parents. Marlborough had little time to indulge in selfish sorrow, and was soon busy in preparations for the next campaign, for which Parliament had granted him ample supplies. He went to The Hague early in March, and his letters to the Duchess show that their recent loss had only served to bind them closer together. The greatest ease I now have, he writes, is sometimes sitting for an hour in my chair alone, and thinking of the happiness I may yet have, of living quietly with you, which is the greatest I propose to myself in this world. In the course of 1703, the Duke of Savoy and the King of Portugal both joined the Grand Alliance. Louis XIV's power was also weakened by a rebellion in the Cévennes. A number of Huguenots had taken refuge from the persecutions of the government in the rugged fastnesses of these mountains. They formed themselves into bands and called themselves camisards, from a kind of white blouse which they wore. Animated by religious fanaticism, they lashed themselves into fervor on the battlefield by wild hymns of praise. The cruelties they had suffered made them sometimes in turn revenge themselves by equal cruelties on priests and monasteries, and at the approach of regular troops they would escape by unknown mountain paths into secure hiding places. Their chief leader was Jean Cavalier, a brave and upright man with a decided talent for war. He turned for aid to the members of the Grand Alliance, and they, though unable to help, were anxious to foment the insurrection as it diverted some of Louis XIV's troops. In the campaign of 1703, Louis XIV determined to make use of the alliance of the Elector of Bavaria, which opened up to him a large part of the country between France and Austria, and send his army straight to Vienna, that he might crush with one blow the power of Austria. But the general to whom he entrusted this scheme, Villars, did not cooperate well with the elector of Bavaria, and the plan failed. In the Netherlands, death had freed Marlborough from the rivalry of Athlone and the Prince of Saarbrück, but three new Dutch generals had been appointed in their place, Overkirk, Optum, and Schlangenberg. Overkirk was no longer young, but was a soldier of great ability. From the other two, Marlborough met with much opposition. His plan for the campaign had been to invade Brabant and French Flanders, but the Dutch pressed him first to besiege Bunn, with a view of securing the Lower Rhine. Marlborough was obliged to give way to these timid counsels 
and Bunn fell on the 16th May. After this, Marlborough returned to his old plan and hoped to signalize the campaign by the capture of Antwerp and Ostend. But he was disappointed in all his hopes by the folly and inefficiency of the Dutch generals, who failed to cooperate with him. He was obliged to return from before Antwerp after having for five hours tried to persuade a council of the generals and field deputies to attack the French lines, and he had to content himself with the capture of two more fortresses, Wy and Limburg. Whilst Marlborough was arranging the winter quarters of his troops, he heard that the Archduke Charles, now called Charles III of Spain, had arrived at Dusseldorf. Success had widened the aims of the Grand Alliance. The Emperor had been emboldened to proclaim his son King of Spain, and in the treaty by which Portugal became a member of the Grand Alliance, the object of the Allies was clearly stated to be to secure the throne of Spain to the Archduke Charles. It was thought right that he should go and fight for his own cause in Spain, and he was now on his way to England, whence he was to sail for Spain. Marlborough hastened to meet him at Dusseldorf, and the young king received him with every possible mark of distinction, and gave him a sword richly set with diamonds, and his portrait also set with diamonds. Soon afterwards, Marlborough returned to England to be ready to receive Charles, who after a short stay there sailed for Lisbon. During the whole of the campaign of 1703, Marlborough had been harassed by news of the disturbances produced by the party factions in England. The Tories as a body were only half-hearted in their support of the war. The Earl of Rochester spent all his time in London. All the discontented Tories gathered round him and passed their time in caballing against the government. Marlborough and Godolphin persuaded the Queen to order Rochester to return to his post in Ireland, which, as they had expected, he angrily refused to do, and resigned the Lord Lieutenancy. The Duke of Ormond was appointed in his stead, and Marlborough and Godolphin were rid of a troublesome colleague. But though Rochester lost his share in the government, some of his friends still held high office and were an endless cause of trouble. The Duchess of Marlborough continued to urge her husband to incline more to the Whigs, who would be much more likely than the Tories to support the war with zeal. She was in continual intercourse with the Whigs by means of one of their leaders, the Earl of Sunderland, who had married her second daughter, Lady Anne Churchill, in 1700. He was the son of that Earl of Sunderland whose cleverness and unscrupulousness had enabled him to play such an important part in the reigns of Charles II and James II. He was an advanced Whig, a man of decided ability and an eloquent speaker, but wanting in prudence and tact. His free and violent way of expressing his opinions made him especially disagreeable to those who differed from him, and he was not a likely man to conciliate Marlborough with the Whigs. Marlborough himself would have preferred to rule independently of party. I hope, he writes to his wife, I shall always continue in the humor I am now in, that is, to be governed by neither party, but to do what I think is best for England, by which I shall disoblige both parties. Some Whigs still took part in the government and were members of the Privy Council. 
the Earl of Nottingham, Secretary of State, who was a firm friend of Rochester and a violent Tory, had opposed as far as he could the policy of Godolphin and Marlborough. He knew that the Queen esteemed him highly, and counting on her favour, declared that he could no longer remain in office unless all the Whigs were excluded from the government. He hoped in this way to humble his rivals, but the Queen remained true to her ministers and refused to do as he wished. Nottingham resigned, and his place was filled by Harley, the Speaker of the Commons. He was a personal friend of Marlborough's, whose political views he shared, and who valued him on account of his industry and financial talents. Harley was a man determined to get on. By his plausible ways, he managed to keep on good terms with both Whigs and Tories, churchmen and dissenters. He meant to stick to Marlborough as long as he could hope to gain anything from him, and succeeded in inspiring the Duke with complete confidence. A friend of Harley's, and a man of far more brilliant talent, Henry St. John, was about the same time made Secretary of War. He had won the Duke's favour by professing the warmest attachment to him, but the Duchess regarded both these statesmen with suspicion, and blamed the Duke for not having promoted some of her friends the Whigs. End of section 12